Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 283. We're all still here. Recorded April 30th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. I'm your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me against all odds are our two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Oxygenair Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hello? Is this thing on? Do I have power? Oh, man. It's it's windy here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Seth has both internet and air conditioning, so he's not roughing it too much. Well, here I do, right. not at my right. house. So. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit, but you know, April 30th, it seems like just a month ago, it was April 1st. It's amazing how, how fast time flies. Um Tonight, uh, we actually were doing some recording last night, uh, uh, some pre-recording for uh, to fill in for a gap uh, that that is coming up in the near future. And Seth told us, "Hey, there's some storms coming in. I might go away." And a few minutes later, he went away. Um, and then, as as we found out, those storms were two F three tornadoes that hit within about ten miles of each other, um, big booms. Uh, and so Seth was. Uh, offline a little bit we were texting so i at least knew he wasn't dead i kept checking in on him like every hour you still there you still alive you still breathing <laughs> um so that inspired us to do a a show themed on um disaster recovery and emergency preparedness we've talked about digital backups all the time and digital disaster but disaster recovery but what about your life um so i posted some notes and sent out to the guys and Turns out we've got two um, incredibly uh, paranoid preppers here. So uh, sit back and, and prepare for a, a three-hour mini-series event um, <laughs> because we've got a lot to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll get into this, but when you're literally the last pole on the line from the electric company, you know, you you know you're either going to buy a generator or you're just going to know the power is going to go out occasionally and it'll be a while before it gets back. So we're literally the last poll. I was, and I just live in the middle of the Walking Dead. <laughs> I was very fortunate uh, in Texas to live uh, less than a quarter mile from the power distribution substation for that part of town. So we were the last to go down and the first to come up, and uh, it was awesome. Um, but not everybody gets that. So, but before we go there, I have a couple of things I want to talk about. Just this afternoon, I watched the movie Sully. Tom Hanks. Um, a uh, uh, movie about uh, actually Clint Eastwood movie starring Tom Hanks about the uh, the pilot uh, Chelsea Sullivan uh, Solidgrad Solid I can't remember his name who landed the the plane on the Hudson in, a few years ago. I'm sure you remember that story. Um, and it was a really fascinating story. I, I have a feeling that it was a case of let's not let facts get in the way of a good story uh, several times. But it was really a much better story than I expected. Uh, it was very uh, um, you know, very well done in terms of of you know the craft of movie making, the the sound and the and the editing. Of course, Tom Hanks is just uh, stellar at everything he does, uh, and I just really enjoyed it. So I thought I'd let you know, Sully, uh, well worth the watch. Available on Netflix now. Did they drag yeah, I, anybody I, off? Were there was there anybody <laughs> no. with the footage just getting dragged off? Some doctor or something? No. no. 
No, that wasn't a United flight, I don't oh. think. So, uh, But no, I saw it while it was in the theaters. I was actually in Delaware at the time. Um, and it was, no, I really enjoyed it. I thought Aaron Eckhart did yeah. a fabulous job as a co-star. He's becoming one of my favorite actors. Um, yeah, great movie. Really, you know, it's one of those, it's like, okay, you landed on the Hudson, yay. But no, they, they took that one event and made a compelling, interesting movie out of it. So... I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, and I, there's a couple okay. of angles you could go there. You know, the making of the man or the witch hunt, uh, you know, and they uh, they avoided all the cliches, and I really appreciated that. I just will not watch a movie about airplane disasters because I fly too much, and I just can't, I just can't do it. I can't put myself in – like, I know I'm going to wake up at 2 in the morning with planes going down, you know, <laughs> and that's going to – and I know three hours later I've got to go to the airport and catch a flight, and I've got to live with that. So no, I, I can't do it. Okay. So uh, yeah. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, uh, only one minor injury. So you know he landed a plane in the Hudson, and there was there's going to be a scar. That was what they said <laughs> <laughs> on this one patient. Uh, one yeah, a patient who was in the hospital. And the other one, I, I watched. It's been out for a while. I watched it a while ago, and I, I can't believe I haven't mentioned it before. I I looked through the notes, and it's not there. Kubo in the Two Strings. Uh, it's an animated um, uh, movie. Just really, uh, again, good st- storytelling, great uh, uh, voice characters, good animation, uh, a good, uh, it's it's a kid flick, but one that parents are going to enjoy. So I, I can highly recommend Kubo in the Two Strings. And, and we've watched it several times uh, since uh, it came out on Netflix a couple of months ago, and I was kind of surprised I hadn't mentioned anything about it. Either of you guys seen that one? No. It's on my list. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very stylistic animation uh you know in the same way that sort of kung fu panda uh, works on multiple levels this is more uh i started to say more adult than kung fu panda but no there's fart humor in there too it's uh it really works on all levels uh it's just uh i really enjoyed it and that's it so yeah, well, seth when, yeah, i mean i'm a fan of anime anyway right. so i'm sure i will enjoy it when i get around to seeing it uh this is a you know this it's follows the japanese tradition of talking about outlandish things as if they were commonplace you know so uh what it's the the whole thing is done in the style of like papercraft but it's because the the one of the main characters like is has magical power over paper uh so it's an it's an inter- the style mimics the story which references the style it's 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 meta like that there Anime is really good about doing stuff like that. I mean, people who think anime is just cartoon for kids. I mean, yes, a lot of it is, but it is well done um, storytelling. And in a lot of ways, it's easier to tell an animated story than it is because, you know, you don't have high price uh, actors and all these digital special effects. You know, it's and that kind of gives them a freedom. But then there are people who are very famous, like you're listening to this anime and go, wait a minute, I recognize that voice. And so IMDb, oh, he was on this one too. And so, you know, uh, good. I love, love me a good anime. So, Seth, other than uh, chasing, uh, or I should say, not chasing storms, but running from storms, um, uh, the, uh, the American jurisprudence system must go on. Yes, I found out I got it. And I don't know, you know, it's one of those things you got to call the night before. And so tomorrow I am scheduled for jury duty. But with all of the stuff that um, Canton itself wasn't hit by a tornado, but so much of the just just outside the city limits was 
I might not have to go, but I will. Uh, you know, I may or may not have jury duty tomorrow. And I want to be on a jury. I have never been selected. It's my goal in life. It's on my bucket list. Serve on an actual jury. So I just think it would be cool to do at least once. I've never served so, on a jury either. Uh, either I was summoned once for a local municipal court for the city. It wasn't a uh, state or anything. And uh, and I didn't go. And I, I um, saw a guy at church, uh, and he said, hey, what, what was the deal? You weren't there Friday. Uh, I said, what do you know? He said, jury duty. No, that's not until last Friday. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> and so I went to the judge the very next Monday morning. I skipped work, and, and like as soon as the door opened, I, I threw myself on the mercy of the court. I said, I know this is like you could put me under the jail for this. <laughs> and I said, I just forgot. I got no other excuse than, than, I, than I forgot. And he looked at me and said, boy, that's going to be an expensive forget. <laughs> the they send out the, they send out the notices to me at least once a year and every time i get them i have to say i run a business i can't afford to take the time off blah 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 it will have financial impact and they go yeah all right go you know next and they just yeah. move on and but they just keep repeating the process over and over again so I guess at some point they'll get the memo, but at this point they, you know, they keep sending out the notices, and I keep saying I can't do it, and they keep going, okay, and we when we move <laughs> forward from there. Yeah, with my luck, the one time I get called for jury duty, it's going to be a sequestration for six months. You know, that's just kind of the way the way my life rolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but you know, like I say, that's a goal of mine is to do that, and so um, you know, I I would like to do it at least once. So. <laughs> And uh, just to keep up the media thing, uh, if your paranoia wasn't high enough, uh, Miles has a new History Channel show for you. Oh, yeah, you guys, this is a Dallas uh, thing. It's uh, JFK, you know. Okay, how many times has that, that uh, conspiracy theory been done to death? Well, um, the guys who did the Hunting Hitler show that uh, I think I mentioned a while back, um, which was actually pretty cool, uh, now they've got one called Tracking Oswald. So who knows where this is going to end up. But I watched the first episode. There's just one out. And uh, it's actually really well put together. I mean, they've done a really nice job from a TV production standpoint. Um, and it's the same people. The, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's like an ex-15-year CIA operative who goes in there to try to trace the, um, the movements of Oswald before, during, and after the whole Kennedy assassination thing. Um, it's very interesting. It started off tracing him into Mexico. And one of the things that's kind of cool is you get a sense of how the CIA work or how they did in the 60s, um, you know, what, how they do covert meetings and surveillance and, and all these uh, – they had all these buildings around the Russian embassy in Mexico City that were – I can't remember what they call them. They're like special uh, listening posts and um, they're secured rooms that they bought the building next door or something and then installed this thing in it. And they're all over the place. And, I mean, man, I, you know, when you think about what they did in the 60s, it makes our surveillance these days look so covert compared to what they were doing back then. Eh, day in the life of a spy, what do you do? You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually in favor of overt spying, frankly, especially if you're talking about on your own citizens rather than covert. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this stuff is uh, right out of a Tom Clancy novel, though. It's a lot of fun if you're into that sort of thing. All right. 
And uh, we'll just move on quickly here to a couple of bits of listener feedback. Dave offers some comments on episode 281. He said, I'm not so sure about the value of computer-generated art, but if it does happen convincingly, it'll still be human-generated because it's the humans who wrote the programs. The main thing I felt compelled to write to you was to chip in with my version of what compels people to make the choices they do. Mark said that people always do what they think is right at the time. Unless you're willing to redefine what right is, I'd say there's a better way to put it. People always do what they desire to do at the time. We all have a myriad of thoughts, emotions, opinions, desires, and they all float around our minds grappling for supremacy. And whatever desire wins at the moment of choice is what makes the decision. In the free will debate, this is the comp- compatibilist viewpoint as opposed to the incorrect libertarian viewpoint, which says any choice can be made. I believe that many people make choices they are they know are not right, eating that fourth piece of piece of lasagna was your example i think but if i desire to if my if the desire to eat is stronger than the desire to make the wise healthy choice and deny the appetite then you yield personal sovereignty and make the choice even though you know it's not right i think what you're referring to is our profound ability to convince ourselves that it's okay this time by rationalizing an otherwise obviously wrong choice but we really do know unless our conscience is totally seared that we're choosing a wrong path well, it's possible that in any of the desires you possess might win. It's certainly not possible to choose something you don't desire in some way, unless your desire is attempting to do something random, but then that's still something you desire. Uh, with this model, it brings up the idea that mat- that it matters what your thoughts, what thoughts we allow ourselves to entertain. Someone famous um, wrote something like, it's not your fault if a bird lands on your head. It is your fault if he builds a nest there. Anyway, uh, if this is uh, this is what your show made me think of, careful, you have to change your name again to Armchair Philosopher Rant. Any thoughts on that, guys? Determinism versus free will? Well, you went right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, there's a lot. I like a lot of what he says there. Uh, I think I we would we would share a lot in common. You know, we might not walk the same path, but we would be headed in the same direction. So, um. I you know I like the name though armchair philosopher rant I, that could be that has legs. Uh, I've I've stated what I think uh, there uh, in the show. I won't reiterate it, but I I do think that uh, right. I didn't choose the word right accidentally. Um, it it goes beyond a desire. Uh, you could go you know look at back at the people at Nuremberg to pull up the, a trite example. They believed it was right to torture Jews and murder them. It wasn't just something they desired to do. Uh, in fact, they, you know, it, it, most of them would say they didn't desire to do it, but they did it because they believed it was right. Nobody really believed it was right. They just convinced themselves that it was. So I choose that word not lightly. Um, so that's all I have to say about that. And the next one, we have an anonymous listener, only because he didn't say who he was, left us a voicemail uh, about uh, looking for government to solve problems. Hey guys, this is a message for the Geek Rant. I uh, just had an idea that's been kicking around my head and it touched on some things you, you guys have said. Um, many uh, solutions, many problems seem to stem from uh, when you say that either the government should step in entirely and control the whole thing or they should completely step out or at least greatly reduce their involvement. Uh, seems to be the case with the discussion on the immigration and also on ISPs. That's just two. I'm sure you can come up with many others. We'd be happy to hear them. But these are both cases where the intersection of uh, government controls and monopolies 
and what was supposed to be the free market have led to disgusting chaos. Basically, that's about it. Um, just that the intersections we have or that have come up don't really fit the bill. Um, a better mix would be obviously better or separating the two, but every situation is different. Just wondering about your thoughts on that. Love the show. So basically the, the, the point there, I like the quote there, disgusting chaos. Um, the unknown caller there said, um, we have often presented cases where it's a uh, government all in or government all out. And that's the solution to fixing problems. And he's suggesting a more nuanced approach where sometimes a little bit of government is a good thing. I don't know that I ever agree with that, but Miles, who's a, you know, an, uh, a Nazi socialist, he might agree with that. Oh, no, Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you can't get a little bit pregnant. Um, and government stepping in on anything will have some, I don't know, with every, with every great right, uh, a, gr a great intention becomes a disaster when you put government in charge of it. Um, and, I, and I can only go back on my own experience, you know, of, of the two different governments and countries I've lived in, in that they, um, they're, they're usually incredibly dysfunctional. And a lot of it comes down to just the human desire to do really good things. I mean, you, you've got, in the private sector, you've got the motive of making money and greed and, and all those sort of things that tends to drive a high level of achievement and accomplishment. And in government, I don't know what you've got, power, I guess, uh, security, I don't know. Um, and those mo those motives at, at a human level are completely not compatible. One is completely, I mean, there is a bit of overlap sometimes. When you get that overlap between the motive of making money and power, that's when, oh, everything goes to hell in a handbag. So I don't know. I think government's good when government doesn't try to be uh, an evil dominating power broker. And free market's great when free market is not left to go out there and, you know, be greedy and evil and crime-ridden and everything else. If if you can balance the two, everything's great. But how do you do that without one getting involved with the other? I don't know. You take people out of it. Uh, the the simple, <laughs> yeah. Government, by definition, is people having power over people. I mean, that's, that's what government is. Uh, and uh, humans just aren't good at that. No. Nah. There are times where, you know, because the government's, one of the government's responsibility is to care for the people it governs. And whether you're talking about a state government or a governing bureaucracy of any type, that is true. And so one way where that can happen is if you think on a, like a local government level, you know, the government can be good for financially and buy its stuff from Amazon or wherever they can find the cheapest price online and yay it saves everybody uh, in the in their jurisdiction some taxes or they can quote unquote protect their citizens by buying from people like a city government buying from a business within a city hey it costs them more money but that provides tax revenue and then it allows that place to compete better with um you know mail order or internet based businesses and then that you know you get enough local areas together you get an economy and bigger stores can move in to provide other jobs so 
you know, there's a fine line, but a government can be involved in life in like business that way by providing for the um, well-being of its citizens. All right. I, we could we could spend another hour on that. I'm not going to allow us to. Uh, I'm just going to move on now to um, what do you do when everything falls apart? Uh, so I've, I've broken this up into two uh, basic categories, uh, and I'm going to start with um, I, I, I had started to uh, yeah. Okay. So this is the thing in any, uh, emergency situation, uh, communication is almost always the first thing to break down. And it's also the most important thing, you know, uh, the Facebook has been responding to these sort of things lately. In fact, I, I saw just this week, uh, because, uh, I am, uh, linked to a lot of people in the East Texas area. It popped up, uh, you know, do you need to let people know that you're safe or do you need to search for people? So there, there are things like that that are popping up, but, uh, communication is an important thing. Letting people know that you're safe, and and the flip side of that is letting people know that you need help um, if you're not safe. So uh, in the event of a an emergency, communication uh, is critical and is often th- one of the most overlooked pre-planning sort of things. Yeah, definitely, because people don't think of an emergency till they're in it. So what happens like where I live, the tornado came through, several tornadoes, storm front, there were straight line winds, lots of businesses were affected, lots of people were affected. It's been over 24 hours. I still don't have power in my house. So trying to let, who would I let know? Well, preferably what would have happened is beforehand like i have i have a brother who lives in hawaii so we could set up with everybody contact him to let you know to know that you're okay so then i could call him and say hey it's been two days who haven't you heard from and then i can go oh well maybe something happened at my other brother's house so then i can go there and see oh it was leveled or oh he didn't know there was an emergency because he doesn't have internet and he stays at home as a homebody so you know doing some prep work beforehand of knowing who are you going to call in the event of an emergency to make sure because you know if a cell tower's down there are these things called pay phones around or very few in might, the world left or if you lost your cell phone you could then hey can i borrow your cell phone i just need to make a call to let somebody know i'm okay and then you know nobody's going to reach me because i've lost my cell phone but i can borrow someone else's and let a somebody who doesn't live right next door know so setting up beforehand who you're contacting and letting that person know don't everybody say it's going to be so and so and then nobody tell them so you know just things like that that you can do beforehand to help um the communication process and of course miles one of the things he brought up was not trusting the typical communication lines cell phone and internet uh for example uh, we're going back uh, a lot of years and the infrastructure was very different then but uh after 9-11 for example uh the cell system was working everybody had cell phones but there wasn't cell capacity for it so it was it wouldn't have mattered if you had a phone or somebody else had a phone uh everybody had four bars of signal but nobody could get through because the switchboards uh, that's not even a right word that's uh, welcome back to 1954 uh the switching software was overloaded uh, so, uh, Miles has some thoughts about, you know, alternative ways to communicate. Well, yeah, the, you know, I guess I'm, I'm finding a little bit 
this whole concept of dealing with the disasters because it's it's salient, right? I mean, Seth's just gone through some pretty crazy tornadoes, um, and and we'll be dealing with it for the next probably month uh, as people put their lives back together and everything. Um, but that's um, you know that saying first world problems, right? Um, that's what that is. <laughs> And I know that our listeners are all over the world, so I, I think that we could probably say there are a lot of people who might not empathize necessarily in in that because, A, they're not in a, a, a tornado zone where they're subject to that sort of thing, or they're in an area where they get way worse stuff on a much more regular basis and are probably more prepared for it. And in regards to communications, I would say that if you were talking to the average person living, for example, in Haiti, a cell phone would be a dream. Uh, it ain't going to happen. They don't have that sort of thing. They don't have towers. They don't have infrastructure. So communication is done on a much more human level. People talk to people. People tell their neighbor to tell their neighbor to pass the word down the line that this and this has happened and, and so on. And that's how it used to be. And when, you, when you're in a disaster, you revert back to the way things used to be. And if we've forgotten that, uh, we're at risk. And that's, um, that's kind of the, the point here. I, when, when you, look, this is an interesting thing. Well, I grew up you know, in Australia, and when I was at school, and this was both in um, elementary school and also in high school, um, I'm curious, this is more of a question than anything else. Did, your, did part of your uh, studies at school teach you about disaster management, like, um, I don't know, deadly insects, snakes, uh, dealing with extreme weather conditions, how to find water if you're stuck in the desert? It was this sort of part of normal everyday educational curriculum? Boy Scouts, For me, but not in yeah. public school. I learned it in Boy Scouts and, you know, because I live out in the country. But, uh, yeah, not part of regular school. See, in Australia, when I grew up, it was part of regular school. We were huh. taught how to survive in extreme circumstances. And and I remember when I was about 14, 13 or 14, one of the standard um, excursions that every kid in my high school had to go through was a, uh, a two-week extreme training camp that was almost like a military boot camp on how to i mean we did crazy things we had to run 13 miles we had to uh, canoe 50 miles up a river we had to sail a, a, a you know as a team we had to sail a boat around some really rough waters i mean there was hike you know 100 miles it was crazy stuff but this was sort of part of your i guess what they thought back then it was part of your growth pattern of being a man you know you had to go from boy to man this is how you do it so um, what okay. i'm hearing there is that the average average australian could kick the average american's butt is what no you're no, just, yeah. no not not <laughs> not people but they there's a, a natural sense of resilience right we could survive in a foxhole pretty well. We could handle ourselves in a – maybe that's why I live in the desert. I don't know. But we, could, we find ourselves happiest in the most um, chaotic situations. <laughs> if you look at – if you watch news, uh, the news media and you look at photojournalists, particularly in war zones, they're all Australians. They love going into, you know, getting bombed and missile attacked and everything because that's how they were all raised. And, and the only reason I bring that up is it puts a different context on disaster planning 
because we we had that drummed into us when we were eight years old. <laughs> so I don't have a choice. That's in my blood. Well, you um, you said a key word there that I want to make sure that we hit. This is all about planning. Uh, you can't yeah. wait until the disaster hits to decide what you're going to do. Um, and you know, people in general are bad about planning. Um, Americans are worse than people in general and geeks are worse than average americans so we're talking to the least likely group of people to plan for anything uh because we're smart people and we always think we can handle whatever comes um you know how many how many of you out there who are network professionals um have counseled everybody to back up but don't have a backup of your own you know that the, we are we are the the cobbler's kids who have no shoes um and so one of the thing i wanted to make sure that we talk about here is planning is the key thing um and you you got to plan for the things that are most likely to happen to you uh the zombie apocalypse may be on the list but it's pretty far down the list uh what is more likely um for example just recently you know there was a major gas line disruption uh gasoline fuel um line disruption and it caused some ripples here in uh the south uh, not, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a disaster, but that's the sort of thing that could cause a disaster. If, um, if, uh, petroleum fuel cannot get to an area for six days in a row, the entire system, as you understand it breaks down. And that's not, that's not far outside the realm of reality. And so you got to make sure that you can understand. It's not just enough to have a five gallon gas, uh, can full in your garage, but you know, the store that you go to isn't going to have any food because the trucks couldn't get there and, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, being aware of the things that are likely to happen, I think is, is super important. Yeah. Um, I, I just made a quick list of five of the top most likely disasters that people experience in their life at least once. And, you know, if, if you think about these sort of things at a thousand foot view, it's easy to drill down and try to mitigate risk. Uh, one of the the most likely scenario are going to be weather related incidents, things like floods, fires, um, uh, anything of that sort of nature. But floods are really popular at the moment. I know everybody's getting a flood these days. Come on, <laughs> so you know you've got to get prepared for that one. Um, and then you've got those events that are kind of unusual, but they happen, like earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, cyclones, whatever you want to call but they're extreme weather events that happen in a very, very short period of time, often with very little or no warning. Um, and we all, you know, people live in earthquake zones and they just, you know, blindly walk around the city of San Francisco going, oh, look at this great skyscraper there. I look at it and go, that thing's going to come down. So just, you know, don't, don't go there. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, another one would be war or we, we use the term terrorist attacks. I don't think they're going to be as significant as true war. And I'm talking about a city gets flattened by bombs. Um, and those sort of things happen. I mean, if you look historically over the last hundred years, the number of incidents involving the Western world are significant. They're very high. Now, in comparison to the previous hundred years, I don't know statistically if they're any better, uh, but they're active and we're always seeming to be involved in something and it never ends up on our doorstep until it does. And then, you know, that's another one. Another one would be financial meltdown. You'd be surprised what happens when people lose all of their stuff. When they lose their stuff, they really lose it. <laughs> and uh, that, that can have significant effect. And then the last one, which doesn't happen all that often 
thank God, is biological or disease level on mass population. Um, we've seen a few little events of these things over the years. Thankfully, nothing uh, has hit us, at least hit me here at home. Uh, but, you know, mad cow disease through the uh, SARS and all of these other things that were sort of coming out, these happen. So if I'm not saying you have to be freaked out about all of this sort of stuff, but if you think that it's not going to happen to you, uh, you know, I'm sorry, roll the dice. It, it, it doesn't work that way. It probably something here will happen to you at some point in time. Ain't that right, Seth? Definitely. Yeah. No, no. So, other, I mean, was that, no I don't know, was that a transition or <laughs> if it was, I just totally blew it. So, no, the, you know, and the thing is, every one of those, you know, okay, where I live, I'm probably not going to have a flood because I live on top of a hill. But, hey, I live kind of down at one anchor of Tornado Alley. So, I should know that certain areas are going to be more prone. So, know where you live and say you're going to invest 100 units of whether it's thought evacuation you know prepping or whatever you know the one that isn't going to affect you don't spend all of your time planning for that like for me to spend all of my time planning for a flood if the flood happened that really affected me then it's going to be you know noah's ark and i'm going to be sad i missed it so focus you know nobody has unlimited anything so as you go through your list of preparations Spend more time on things that are more likely to happen to you, and you'll find that once you start planning, you'll be surprised at how much of that plan you can copy and paste into the other one. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what that planning looks like. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I, you know, let's let's go um, uh, the obvious, you know, uh, prepper route is if you find yourself uh, in a situation where. Uh, food and water can't get to you, but you're safe where you are. Uh, it'd be a good idea to have some food and water on hand. But that, in my opinion, is the very you know uh, low end of the things that are likely to happen. Most likely, you're going to have to be displaced from where you are. Um, and so having a stockpile of 60 days of food in your basement is handy if the outside world collapses around you, but history shows that that's not really what happens. What happens is uh, a lightning strike, a fire, um, a, a, a flood event, uh, and you have to leave all of your hard-earned, well-prepared stores. Uh, and so what happens then? Obviously, uh, we, we just covered the communication, but what are you, what are you going to do? How are you going to recover from that? Let's say that you're safe now. Um, you, ha you didn't die, but you've lost everything. Now is not the time to be planning. You know, because it's already happened. So how can you plan for the I've lost everything? Uh, you know, the obvious solution, uh, uh, the simplest, the lowest hanging fruit, the thing that you're an idiot if you don't have is insurance. Um, you know, just make sure that you're insured for the things that are most likely to happen and for the things that are most important to you. I'm not talking about just house insurance. That's important. Uh, car insurance, that's important. But can you uh, recover your income? Can you do without income? Um, that may not be classic, you know, mutual of Omaha insurance. That may be insurance as in I've insured uh, a certain uh, uh, skill set. You know, the insurance goes more than just writing a check to an insurance company. Uh, so what are you guys thinking about, you know, in terms of insuring your ability to continue financially in the event of your house burns down? Seth, you go wow. first. Okay. Well, you know, one, I mean, if you're, 
insurance there. Uh, number two, your social network, regardless of whatever you have, there's going to be an amount of time between whatever happened and the resources you have planned can come to bear. So you remember you are not an island, you know, floating helplessly at sea. So there's a social network that you can fall back on quickly. And this gets, you know, this really ties in a lot with financial February. If you've got your emergency savings, if you've got investments coming that bring money in, um, side jobs that you can kind of do as a hustle and maybe at least you have the opportunity to go full time in them. Um, those are some things you can do to begin to plan for that. You know, maybe it's just like what, you know, if that house was what was tying you to an area, maybe you look around and say, Hey, I'm a web developer and most web developers are, you know, congregating in Idaho. So now's the time to move to Idaho because I don't have my house anymore. So, if if a tragic event happens to you, you can let that event dictate to you or you can turn and maybe relocation is a way to begin to piece your life back together. So is that a good starting point? Yeah, not only relocation, but re, uh, re-education. You right. Know, being employable is important. Um, and, you know let's say the Y2K thing had been a reality. That's not, that had actually been a real thing. Every computer professional would have been out of work because computers would have gone bye-bye. Do you have a contingency plan? Can you do anything else other than what you're doing? You, you asked about insurance. Um, I, I have a dual plan on that one. I, I carry insurance um, through a number of different providers for a whole bunch of different things. And I try not to be one of those people who is overly insured, you know, to pays too much. Um, but at the same time, I think that to put all of your uh, faith in an insurance company being there when you need them is a bit naive. They're very helpful and we would love to think that they were there because the fabric of society depends on them being there, um, but they're often not. And uh, I think you have to be self-insured. What, what I mean by that is you, you need to carry your own emergency fund. You need to have your own position that if the insurance company does go bankrupt on you and won't pay out on the claim or uh, that you have some sort of a plan to get you through it as well. Um, I, you know, I can, I was having lunch with my accountant last week and he was telling me about one of his clients who had uh, just passed away from uh, lung cancer. And it just so happened that when the insurance company were uh, data mining uh, credit bureau reports for this particular patient, they determined that, uh, that it, came up on a red flag uh, before this person passed away that they were uh, getting a lot of hospital bills. And apparently the insurance company's computers ping this thing and the next thing you know they're discovering somehow from the hospitals, I'm sure they weren't legally allowed to do so but they did anyway, uh, that this person had terminal lung cancer and within eight days of that person's passing they cancelled the policy. Now they were illegally allowed to cancel the policy but they did. But that doesn't help the spouse who's now having to move on with their lives without, you know, their life partner and all of a sudden was relying on that life insurance that they paid, you know, diligently into for probably 20, 30 years and it wasn't there when they needed it. So it's not to say that all situations are like that. I hope that it's in the minority, but you've got to have a plan. 
I mean, the insurance industry, at least you know, the modern insurance industry, is entirely built on gathering money and refusing to pay it out. Yeah, uh, and that's everybody knows that. Every insurance customer knows that. Every insurance employee knows that. Their stated purpose, their whole job, is to not pay you when you need it. Um, and you know, you can. I'm sure that there's some insurance salesman out there who's who's taking offense to that. Be offended all you want. You know, it's the truth. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you know, and again, that's just, I just have to reiterate, just because you have insurance doesn't mean you have anything. So, um, don't, don't, you know, we're, we're set financially because we have insurance. No, you're not. You have insurance. That's a, that's a whole other ball game. Maybe you'll get them to pay out. Maybe you won't. But if your plan is, you know, lose the house you know, house burns down tomorrow. We get the insurance check the next day, and then the debris is cleared, and we've got that new house up in six months. In six months, you might get the insurance company to return your phone call. So don't plan on insurance being your short-term solution to anything. Right. And so let's let's say let's take that out of the the loop. Let's say we're all financially independently wealthy. Uh, that's not a problem, uh, and we've suffered uh, an incapacitation event. We're not dead, but we are unable to communicate. Um, and you know, like let's let's use me for as an example. I got three kids and a wife. Um, and let's say that my wife and I were in a, a car accident, and we were both um, you know unable to to, to be parents. And unable to communicate uh, as as parents. That's again another situation where you have to have the planning done ahead of time. And that planning is people need to know. You need to have a plan. You need to uh, you need to have you know. Uh, it was traditional uh, in in uh, older cultures. It's less so now to have godparents. And these are people who were uh, you know who agreed to step up to the task of raising your children in the event that you couldn't do it. Um, that's something that needs to happen uh, because if you don't, you know who's going to decide it? The government is going to decide it. Um, and it doesn't matter if you've got wonderful friends and aunts and uncles and whatever willing to step up. It all comes down to the government if you haven't expressed your wills, uh, your desires. Even if you're, you know, you may not be dead, uh, but you may be, you know, um, unable to express your wishes for whatever reason. And now somebody else has to make that decision. And that somebody else is going to be, you know, uh, a minimum wage um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services worker, as sad as that may be, that's the way it is. So you've got to make those plans now. Uh, you know, I got three kids, the oldest of which is fourteen. I've been a parent for fourteen years. I got no plans. Uh, I'm I'm as guilty as 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 anybody else about this. Yeah, and so okay, the first thing, let's say you made the plan, you might want to talk to that person and let them know that hey, I've selected you to be, uh, you know, because. Um, when my nieces and nephews were younger, uh, one of my brothers came to me and said, hey, I just want to let you know that, you know, you're who I want to be guardian of my kids. And I'm like, OK, cool. Um, you know, and they're all older now. And so that's not really a big deal. But don't don't expect that, you know, cousin Susie is going to be a great mom to your kids. And you never talk to cousin Susie about it because maybe, you know, she's barely surviving, taking care of her own kids. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is you want, again, you want to make sure that not only does cousin Susie know, but then, you know, cousins, Billy and Joe and Jim Bob as well, because you don't want a bunch of people fighting because you only told one person, they would never tell you because I remember what you did back when. No, everybody needs to know. And it's, 
you want to have it in writing and then you want to have the right legal forms taken care of. Um, you know, there's, there's a will, but there's also a living will. Uh, don't forget you need power of attorneys. Um, and there's a special medical power of attorney as well as power, financial power of attorneys. And then what circumstances allows those things to kick in place and who, yeah, did- so you don't want to break your leg in a car accident and have somebody come in and take your kids from you. Uh, so, right. you know, or wait, pull the plug on him put him he said he didn't want to be hooked up to a machine well it's it's an iv bag take it easy so yeah you got to make sure that uh, that everything and and i like the the, the way you, you you've got to make sure that the government is on board again you got to have these legal forms because again if the government's going to be deciding you've got to let them know you i got this and I, you got to have it in the in the right way or not the, the other option is that you do all of your estate planning completely outside of the concept of probate and government intervention but there has to be uh, there has to be a legal uh, uh declaration of intent so yes, even if you're not using true. the probate system you have to make sure that the 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 method that you have for example um uh my wife's sister uh when she passed had a handwritten will that we that was in the secretary in in her uh, house that was completely null and void because it was just a handwritten piece of paper um dated and it didn't stand up in texas law so there was an expression of will didn't mean a dang thing yeah i am a fan of uh trusts and limited partnerships and entities which are uh which every member uh who has some sort of skin in the game in in terms of estate planning um is a is a partner in is a member in uh and that way if one person passes the asset ownership of that person, which is in the trust or it's in the partnership, can then be controlled by any other trustee or any other partner uh, within the rules of that of that entity, and that it never actually leaves the the world of the artificial, you know, company or artificial entity, and hence never ends up in government's hands. Um, in California, for example, I'm not sure if this is the case today. I think it probably still is. Uh, it used to be that if you had a will, even if it was registered with a bank or with a notary or with the government or with an attorney or anybody like that, um, another beneficiary of the will was not able to um, uh, benefit from the will until it went to the government and effectively in front of a court and a judge looked it over, made sure it was a you know successful legal document, and then said yes, this is okay, and we'll you know we'll allow this to happen. And oh by the way, there's a tax, and you got to pay that. Well, the biggest problem was that those courts got so backed up with cases that it could take up to two years before a judge would look over a probate case. So what would happen is that say the breadwinner of a family. Uh, passes away and there's still a mortgage on the house and you know somebody's got to pay the mortgage and let's say the breadwinner had a life insurance policy and it did pay out but it paid out to the beneficiaries who are all on that will well for two years no one could touch the money meanwhile the bank's knocking on the door going um where's our mortgage payment um you know we own this house get out and the poor people who are victims in the whole thing, the, the rest of the family who maybe weren't working, weren't income earners, had no access to capital, no access to money, couldn't pay the mortgage, lost the house. Two years later, they get the windfall. How did that help? <laughs> so if you keep it outside of, of government intervention by doing it in uh, properly controlled estate planning setups, 
uh, like trusts or limited partnerships, um, you typically can benefit from that. But having said that, talk to your attorney. Don't talk to me. Yeah, and the the old movie trope of a bunch of people gathered around a long oak table with the the lawyer opening the envelope and having the reading of the will. Um, yeah, that's not a thing. Um, and it, you, you don't want that to be the moment when when the when somebody finds out. Oh yeah, you don't get the 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 whatever the million dollars the the rare bowling ball collection whatever it is you don't want the lawyer after your death to be the one telling people that you want to have those wishes well known well ahead of time um you know uh jimmy you're a druggie and i don't want to support your drug habit you're not getting a penny that needs that conversation needs to happen long before you you uh die no, definitely. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, and that's another thing you want to make sure that don't think, oh, I made a will 20 years ago. Your financial situation, your life situation has changed. Um, what it has happened more than once. So, and you know, you made this great will, uh, and you left everything to your wife, Sarah, but then 10 years after you made the will, Sarah ran off with Jim and you divorced her and married Suzanne. Then you died and Sarah got everything because you never went back and changed your will. So has plans changed? Has life changed? Make sure your disaster preparation, whether that, you know, that, that disaster is you die. That's a pretty big disaster. Make sure that keeps up with the times, you know, um, so that's just an important thing to remember is that just because you made a plan doesn't, you know, sometimes having an old plan is more harm than if there was no plan at all. All right. So now let's say you've got an ironclad will. You've done everything right. It's, it's, it's notarized. It's legal. It's, it's all proper. Uh, everybody is aware of the situation and you've got that precious document in a safe deposit box in a, in a bank somewhere downtown. Um, somebody needs to know where that somewhere downtown is. Somebody needs to have a key to that box. Um, where Where's the deed to your house? Can you put your hands on it? Uh, where, is, uh, where are your tax returns for the last couple of years? Can you put your hands on it? Where's your living will? Wait, you don't have a living will? Wait a minute. Let's take care of that. Um, it's it's not just important. What about your 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 uh, online banking? I, I do all the banking in my, my family. Uh, I do it online. Um, my wife doesn't have the passwords. It's not not because I don't want her to have the passwords. Uh, She just doesn't. Now, in a situation like that, she's on the account. She could go to the bank. She could get that all all set up. That's not a big deal. But I have business accounts for Element OP Productions that she's not on. And I need to let her know, you know, even though she's not, uh, you know, let's say the will says she gets everything, including my business holdings, which I think is like $118 right now. Uh, but she gets all my business holdings. Um, she has no access to that. She doesn't know the accounts. She's going to have to go to the bank and say, um, do you have any accounts for Mark Cockrell? And they're going to say, I can't tell you that. Um, so it's very important that you have all your documentation um, you know, shareable and, and known. you got to know where it is. got to tell people because, uh, you know, f- for example, insurance policies, that's all about making sure that people are taken care of after you die. But if they don't know where their insurance policy is, that doesn't help. Right. I, it, or go ahead, Miles. I was going to say that, that it also um, – I've had to uh, – I've had both of my parents have passed away. So I was the – and I'm an only child. So it always it ended up on my lap to have to deal with the, the messy process. Um, the one thing that saved my bacon every time 
was that the bank manager of the bank that my parents went to for 20 years was a family friend and knew me and knew them and knew what had happened and was willing to uh, do whatever it took to help me out, um, which I'm, you know, eternally grateful for that. Um, The problem is that that was 20 years ago. And those banks, you know, you're not going to get some guy at Wells Fargo doing that sort of thing or Bank of America or City or any of the Chase or any of the big ones because they can't. They're not allowed to. I'm a big fan of banking with smaller community banks, credit unions, local entities where you get to know the people and they get to know you. Uh, because when it comes down to these sorts of times when you really need them on your side, it kind of helps if they know who you are. And it's not a perfect science. It's just human nature. You know, we're very empathetic when people are going through rough times. We want to help them out. You know, but that's uh, that's not so much anymore because, okay, my dad and my family has been banking at this bank for since like almost like I was born, well over 30 years. And there was an issue, um, you know, my mom had gotten a savings bond that my dad didn't know about and we found it when we were cleaning up some of the house. And so we take it into there and I went in with my dad. I'm listed on all of the accounts. So like, you know, if, if my dad drops dead, I can go access the money in the checking account because I'm listed on there. But I was asking her questions about the savings bond, but she wouldn't even look at me because it was my mom and dad's name. My dad, who was standing right beside me, had to ask her the exact same question for her to answer. And these are tellers that he knows and we have known for years. So you can't always say that they're going to, you know, that that is a good thing anymore because a lot of them, they really don't care. Um, or, you know, or I don't, the law you know. says they, they're not allowed to care. Regardless of their empathy, their hands are tied. Yeah. So what do we do? Good question. Uh, you know, I don't know what I would have done in that case. You know, if I would have had like a death certificate or something, maybe, but I don't know what would have happened at that point. So the so. the situation there is like what Miles was talking about. If you have, you know, Anderson LLC, uh, that is all your family members are uh, uh, limited liability corporation membership, whatever, uh, then it's not an issue. Uh, they 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 are they own your property already and you know if you're getting older um and you know, one of the things that uh that estate planners often talk about is uh the death tax the estate tax whatever you want to call it when you die the government says you know we're going to take a third of what you own just because you're dead um the the w- good way to make sure that happens is to make sure you don't actually own anything when you die um, right but you can't just give it away either because the government says aha we're onto that you can't just give your money away but you can you can share ownership and so there there is a surviving owner uh, and that's the the more complicated stuff that Miles was talking about. Your financial planner and your lawyer, you have one of those, right? <laughs> I, I, there's no excuse not to. Right. Honestly, um, if you have more than five thousand dollars to your name, if you own a car, if you own a house, if you if the bank owns a house they're letting you live in, um, if if you you then meet the standards for needing a financial advisor, that doesn't mean that you know it's a, a, a Charles Schwab guy that you meet with quarterly. It might just mean. Um, you know, uh, a CPA firm down the street that once every year you you book an appointment and you have an update. That that means that's having a financial advisor. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that he's calling you up and having coffee with you as you talk about your kid's retirement. Uh, I mean, your, your kid's college plans and your retirement. That would be great, but not everybody can afford that or needs that. Um, find a local CPA. Uh, find a local financial advisor. They'll do fee-only services. So you're going to pay them $100 one time and then $100 every year to go freshen that up. These are all perfectly reasonable, uh, reasonable ways to do things. They're legal, they're inexpensive, and they're ways to make sure that, that everything is covered in the event that you're gone. Uh, so let's move on from there and talk about you're not gone, you're still here, uh, and you haven't been displaced from your house, but it's you and your hostage in your house, right? Let's not, let's not go zombie, let's go earthquake. Let's go uh, 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 hurricane. You know, if you live in a beach area, um, you know, Katrina certainly showed us that, um, you could, you could have been fine. Um, but there's 10 feet of sea level where a road used to be. You're stuck. What are you going to do? This is where, you know, the prepper philosophy, uh, philosophy kicks in. But even if, even if you're not going to have, you know, uh, a, a lifetime supply of little Debbie's in your basement, there are things that you can do to make sure that you're prepared, prepared in an event that you're iced in for a week. That happened to me just recently. And, uh, you know, we, we started having to, you know, crack open the spam and, and, you know, the stuff that we didn't really like because we weren't prepared. Little things like that. Do you live in a place where it gets cold? Maybe you should have a, a cold weather preparation. Maybe you should have some, some uh, uh, Mylar blankets. Maybe you should have some um, uh, uh, non-electric or non-natural gas-based heat sources. It's just simple things like that. Yeah, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with having... It, it doesn't even have to be big, but something like a shoebox where you keep an extra flashlight, where you keep a little portable radio, where you keep a box of candles because you never, you know, yay, we live in, we live in America. So we have the best of everything. Right. But you know, I'm looking at 24, possibly 48 hours with no electricity at my house, you know, and flashlight batteries, rechargeable lights are great but what happens when you have nothing to recharge with so yes you can have a generator but sometimes all you need is a few candles so don't forget the mundane stuff like that i think it's also important to realize that you know we 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 get so habitually desensitized to the importance of some things and relying on the cvs down the end of the road that you know oh well, if i need that medicine i can just go and get that script filled or I can just get that next 30 day supply or whatever. If that CVS is, or none of the pharmacies are out of business, they've all shut down. There's no power. Everybody's raided the drugs. I mean, who knows what goes on with this stuff. If you know that you need, I don't know, diabetes medication or you need some regular medication, um, if you can, keep a supply of it, keep a stock of it. If you know you're going to need it, then at least have, say, 90 days supply available to you. Now, I mean, I know there's legal issues with narcotics and how, how many you're allowed to get and so on. But if there's a way that you can convince your doctor to write a script for a larger number of pills so that you know that in the worst case scenario, we're going to be fine for at least 30 days, uh, you can get through this sort of stuff. Um, uh, uh, one thing I want to mention is that take the time and rotate the stock that you have at your house. Like when you buy, let's say you buy cereal because oh, who doesn't honestly, like it? I just want to pause you just a second. I, this is a good thought. But the next five minutes of this discussion will only apply to Americans. Nobody else has a pantry stocked full of, of, of weeks worth of food. All right. 
please continue. <laughs> okay, uh, that's that's true. But you know, so let's say you buy cereal and you always, you know, you bought some one time and then this one stays stuck in the back. And when you buy a new box, you always put it in front. Well, something happens. Oh yeah, we got plenty of cereal. And then you look back and go, oh my gosh, this stuff is seven years old, and you know, and it's weevil eaten or whatever. So just make take the time. And once you develop the habit, it takes no extra time because you just do it automatically. You know, like if I buy a if I buy a jug of milk and there's still half a jug in the refrigerator, I take the half jug out, put the full one in the back and put the half jug in front because otherwise what will happen is somebody else in the house will just come and open up that milk and then the next thing you know, oh, there's still half a gallon of milk here. Wait a minute, that expired a month ago and when I turn it upside down, nothing moves. So just get in the habit of making sure the the newest stuff you purchased is behind the older stuff that it might only be a week old it might be two weeks old you know there's some some food staples can last for months or years in pantry storage just whenever you buy something put it behind the older something so the older something gets used first and once like i say it's weird when you're thinking about it but once that becomes a habit it, it takes zero extra time. So just rotate your whatever you have. You know, even if you have 30 days of canned goods, those 30 days of canned goods don't sit somewhere never used. You just, you put the new canned goods at the back and move everything forward. Your supplies, make sure that, you know, say you keep five gallons of water. Well, you don't want to keep five gallons of water for a year and then come try to use it that you know you'll get sick and die so um you know rotate your water um and rotate whatever you have periodically replace it and uh that's that's just my two cents about that i just want to point out that seth said somebody else in the house only two people live in his house just say it. actually we have four now <laughs> okay. so but <laughs> um and the and also you know a little bit of planning uh uh, for things that you can see coming, like a hurricane that you can see a week out, um, you know, a, a thing that happens with hurricanes is often storm surge will uh, uh, knock out the freshwater supply systems or taint the freshwater supply systems. Fill your bathtubs. Average bathtub will hold 40 gallons of fresh water. You, you can, a family of three could drink out of that for a while. Just little things like that. Um, you know, quick tip, uh, a, t- a can of tuna can be both a candle and a snack. You put put a put a piece of yarn in it. Uh, in the top poke a hole in it uh, the the tuna packed in oil the 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 wick will pull up the oil when the light uh, when the candle burns out 24 to 48 hours you open the can and, and you have a snack yeah preppers go over there who I'm buys either- tuna in oil that's gross <laughs> well if you're a prepper you need the high calories see yeah oh. L- let me bring this back to um so it, you know it's very easy to to laugh at people who are preppers um and and I I guess I'm as guilty of that as anybody else, but um, I wanted to cite something that happened to me in '94. I was living in uh, the west side of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, which is uh, you know what they call the Valley. Um, it's a very it's your typical Southern California neighborhood, regular suburbia. And one morning at about I guess it was about five thirty in the morning literally got thrown out of bed by an 8.9 or 8.7 magnitude earthquake 
which was the Northridge, 1994 Northridge earthquake. We were five miles from the epicenter. And uh, it was interesting to go through that experience. It wasn't pleasant, but, you know, you, you start realizing what damage earthquakes can do, particularly when you're living within five, minute, five miles of the epicenter. Uh, out, we had a pool out the back. The entire pool threw up. I've never seen a pool do that before. But literally, the ground just rippled and all the water of the pool threw up. And guess where it threw up into? The house. So now my house is flooded. There's broken glass everywhere. It's dark still. Everyone's trying to, you know, I'm trying, trying to clamber to get some clothes on. And the first thing you want to do is get out of the house because the thing's going to fall down on you. So to see the entire street, like this Brady Bunch neighborhood, everybody running out on their driveway out into the middle of the street while they're worried their house is going to fall down in their night robes and, and whatever, because it was, you know, most people were asleep when this happened. Um, and that began the start of probably about a seven-day, no power, no food, no water lifestyle um, which was very interesting. And the thing that, you know, LA's got, I guess, Southern California at the time had about 23 million people living in it. So it's a very, very populated area. When you've got a lot of people living in a small area like that and a big event like this occurs, um, you see a side of humanity that is really unusual. And, and look, I love watching The Walking Dead. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great show. And the one thing that really is attractive to me about it is how the, the human psychology plays out, how you see these vacuums of power and these bad things come and fill it and, and how people get over this mass disaster and some rise to the occasion and some are weaker and some are evil and some are good. And, you know, it, the whole story is, is just this constant well, I saw that happen over the seven days in Los Angeles. We had a, a strip mall that was about a, maybe half a mile from where we lived. The same day that the earthquake happened, the strip mall was shut down. And, of course, it was half broken into, windows smashed. And I saw people just go in there and loot that place for water, for, for you know, toilet paper, for food, for anything they could lay their hands on. They went in there like savage savages like criminals and just looted the place just because they were all worried i want my family to survive and i'm going to survive and my neighbor's not and it was really pathetic to see it and and these events these these catastrophic events change people's minds people will do things you never expected them to do they will react in ways you never expected them to. The, pe the person you think would be the least likely one to help the neighbor out will, and the one you think would be the most likely won't. And it's crazy to see this stuff happen. And you've got to realize that 50% of preparation to a natural disaster is dealing with the human element as a result of it, not the natural disaster itself. It's how people act. It's what they do. It's how they... They turn into crazed, you know, uh, chaotic people, and some don't. And the ones that don't, they're the ones who really are the are the, the people you should spend have around in your life. Well, I and mean, then I, just to, to to interrupt you for just a bit, mm -hmm. an important part of preparation then could be that backyard barbecue on Memorial Day. Oh um, yeah. The, the more you know the people, and the more they know you, the more you are human instead of a competitor. Mm -hmm. uh, the more valuable they become. And you, you, you're you just talking about a 10-day event. 
right? right. This was not right. uh, an apocalyptic thing, but for on day three, it sure felt like it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you know what we did? It's interesting you say barbecue because it's exactly what we did. We got the Weber kettle and we wheeled it out onto the sidewalk. And at nighttime, we put all of these, you know, like uh, chairs, you know, like you- Lawn chairs. Lawn chairs, yeah. And we had everybody in the neighborhood every night come out and everybody brought what food was going to expire in their their refrigerator because we had no power. And we all cooked it. And we made it available for everybody else in the street who didn't have any food. And, and that was what community was. That was neighborhood goodness. Meanwhile, the other, there were people in our neighborhood who were just crazy and went and looted stores for every canned good they could get their hands on and then sat there in, in, in solitude just eating the tuna fish. We were having a good old time having steaks and, you know, the whole bit because it was going to go off anyway. Um, and thank, and, and that's when you learn who your neighbors are. That's when you meet good people. Um, it's, it's an awesome, it, you can take any situation of adversity like that and you can turn it into an uh, incredible opportunity to have a better outcome at the end of it all. If you can just get yourself through it. <laughs> so it's, it, and, and that's just the way I look at it. You know, you gotta be, you gotta be prepared. You gotta have the food. You gotta have the water. You've gotta prepare yourself for an emergency when it happens. You gotta have good people around you. You gotta have all that stuff. Most importantly, you gotta be physically fit. At the end of the day, if you have to run out of the house, learn how to run. I mean, that helps. If you can't, you might be called upon to help somebody who can't do it. You need to be fit. You need to have a strong back. You need to be able to lift. It doesn't take that much. Go to the gym a couple of times. I mean, just keep, just have a focus on this so that in the worst case scenario, you can get yourself and, and, your, and your loved ones through it. I am guilty on all of those fronts. Um, yeah, I, it, something happened at, at church this morning. It was a very minor event, but it was a big noise. Um, and in that split second, I was trying to decide how I was going to respond to the loud noise that ended up being a non-event. And I realized that the extricating myself from where I was going down three flights of, of steps to be where I needed to be and to, you know, render assistance or escape or whatever was probably physically beyond my abilities. Um, you know, in an emergency situation because, you know, I'm a, I'm fat B I've got bad knees. C I was in a tight spot. Um, it, it, what you just said now just brought that to my mind that, uh, you know, in that moment, I would have been completely useless just because I'm a big fat guy. It's, that's the reality. Well, uh, you know, we, we all are, right? We're geeks. We sit on our butt most of the day. We, we, we work in front of computers. We're not physically active. I mean, a lot of us are not. And, and you know, it, it's, it's how it is. But the problem is what, what's the, the dichotomy here is that we alpha males who are supposed to be the, the – um, the mast on the ship. We hold the, the family up. We keep things afloat when everything else is around us. You know, we're the, the go-to guys. If we can't do our job, <laughs> then we've only got ourselves to blame. And it's really, really hard for us to accept the fact that we're, we've got that persona of being that person. And yet when the proverbial S hits the fan, you've got to rise up. And you've got to be ready to rise up. So, I don't know. You can't – I'm not saying everyone needs to go out there and become Arnold Schwarzenegger, but at the same time, just a little bit of – understand that 
preparation for anything like this, whether it be legal documents, banking, money, finance, having the right stuff in the pantry, water, medication, communications, all the stuff that we've spoken about, it's pointless if you can't rely on yourself to step up and either get you and your family out or be somebody to help your neighbor or, you know, we've got to be able to do that too. All right. I'm do. I'm going to do you all a favor. Everybody um, get your phones uh, handy. Okay, Google, remind me in one month to check my financial emergency plan. There you go. I just did you a huge favor. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I, I think we hit all the high points there. Seth, was there anything else you wanted to cover? You know, one thing I, we didn't mention when we were talking about legal documents specifically are DNRs, which stands for do not resuscitate. Um, if it's somebody's wish to not be resuscitated, you know, no, or no heroic measures or however you want to phrase that you need to get that on file with, you know, wherever your primary care thing is with your doctors. So that way it's known beforehand because, you know, you don't want to run up the $50,000 hospital bill to try to save someone, you know, um, whenever they's like, Hey, just let me go. And that's my wish. Um, I didn't like when my grandmother was really, and Basically, she wasn't alive, just her body was kept functioning on life support. She had a DNR, but the only person who knew that was my mother, and my mother didn't want to let her go. Um, and then whenever my mother was in the process of dying, they didn't have one, but my dad kept saying they did. And, you know, and so, you know, there could have been some trouble gotten in if they wouldn't have because it wasn't, he kept saying, you know, we have a DNR, but come to find out they never did it was just their wishes and they never got their wishes on paper anywhere so that is an important document because um that multiple people need to know because sometimes the one person isn't prepared to let you get your way because you know and there's lots of reasons in that so that's one of the documents that needs some forethought and to be on file so that way if it's ever needed you can reference it yeah, I've never had a fear of death. My biggest fear is not dying. Right. You know, being in a situation where I am not alive, but I can't die. Right. Metallica it, it, one it, playing in the background. <laughs> it's it's hard to have this conversation with your family too. Right. Um, I found that one very very difficult to speak to my wife about. Look, you know, if the day comes and I'm gone, this is what you need to do. It. I don't know, maybe we guys are a little more pragmatic. Um, it's hard to have that discussion. And I don't want to say that women are not pragmatic. I mean, they, they certainly are. But it's a, if you need to be the person to have to step up and start that conversation, realize that you will get a bit of pushback on it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't persevere and, and try and complete it and document it and, and have all of those things in place. And because it's good for everybody. If you can't be there to do something, you need everybody to at least follow what you would have done if you were there. And, and I would go one further. That's the last favor you can do for their family, uh, for your family. Take that decision making away from them. Don't make your widow uh, or your widower uh, spend their time trying to decide which coffin would Mark like to be in. Would, would he like the powder blue one? Uh, should I spend that much? How, I know, I know he's a tightwad. Would he, would he, would he approve of me spending that much? Don't, don't um, saddle your family with those decision making. Do one last 
act of provision for your family and make those decisions in advance. And, you know, let's face it, sometimes some of the biggest people out there looking to make money off of your death are the funeral homes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you need this padded coffin and the pewter coat and the the bevel the trim. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm dead. I don't care. You know, pine box under a flower bed is fine with me. So, you know, if if plan your funeral so that way an unscrupulous funeral home owner can't come in and you know extort the prices um from you whenever you're dealing with grief and not thinking straight you know because hey you just lost someone you're thinking i want to be comfortable but psychology psychologically what happens is you're projecting that comfort onto your deceased spouse or family member significant other whatever and you're you're throwing money away at all of these trimmings to make yourself feel better and in the end, six months, a year later, why am I paying, still paying on this $50,000 funeral? Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't, it wasn't purchased beforehand and I got every extra that wasn't needed. So that's another way that you can, you can save money. You can save your, your spouse, significant other, some f- financial heartache by not putting it off to the last minute and hey and guys we're bad about this we're super bad you know just just a quick story two two quick stories but uh i i have a personal rule um about two things uh butt kickings and and honesty if you ask for it i have to give it to you um (laughs) and uh uh my when my father-in-law died my wife's father uh a few years ago we were sitting in um the morticians uh, that's not the right word sitting in the the funeral home office and they were trying to decide uh, what to do and so it's it's a grieving widow and two grieving daughters um and me and i'm the outsider here uh and i and i respected my position as the outsider they were having these discussions and i was content to just let i was moral support i was there to support uh my family in their time of grief and they were looking at this um expensive hand carved wooden coffin because my father-in-law was a woodworker and, and his widow said you know, he would love this. He, if he were here today, he would admire this, uh, this craftsmanship in this. He would, this would be an honor to him to, to bury him in this. And they, and it was incredibly expensive and, and they were going back and forth. And finally, somebody asked me, Mark, what do you think? And so that opened the floodgates to be able to say what I thought. And I said, if, if I'm, I'm not going to say his name, if, if Bob were here today, he would be, um, embarrassed that you're even having this discussion. Because yes, he was a woodworker, but he was also a practical man. And he would say, uh, go nail uh, together some, some two by four pieces of pine and stick me in a box. I ain't here no more. Um, and so uh, fortunately, I was able to talk them out of, of what really could have been, they could have been financing that funeral, like you said, Seth, for, for a decade. Um, but they asked me the opinion, what, what do you think? And, and once I told them, they were like, yeah, you're right. He, he absolutely would have said that if he were here today. Um, and so just don't leave because people in grief don't make good decisions. That includes you. If you find yourself having lost, you know, the, the livelihood that you thought you made for whatever reason, you're not going to be making good decisions. Making those decisions ahead of time when you're able to think clearly um, is very important. And my second story, uh, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'5", 400 plus pounds. Um, my, I had a big cousin. He was bigger than me. He was 6'6", you know, uh, big giant guy. He died uh, several years ago. 
And they had, you know, the family viewing, right? You come by and, and you say stupid stuff like he looks so natural. Well, of course he's natural. He's not plastic. Um, uh, and uh, But the entire conversation all night long was about how big the casket was and about how they had to special order it because he was such a big guy. And I came away from there and I told my wife, I don't want that to be the last conversation people have about me. I want you to cremate me. Um, and because A, it was indignant uh, and B, that everybody who now remembers my cousin who remember the last conversation they had in his presence, even though it was his dead presence was about how big the casket was and how they had to special order it. And it was a rush job. Um, and that was just, again, my cousin would have been embarrassed by that. And I was embarrassed by that for him. Uh, so just think about these things. Do you really want people to have, what conversation do you not want people to have about you? Make those wishes known ahead of time. We kind of got morose there. I'm sorry. Wow. But, (laughs) but you know, here's the thing you can have it now or it, cause that conversation is going to be had. So it's not like you're sparing someone of that because the conversation of, you know, since you brought up Mark of, of your wife's and your daughter saying, you know, what, how should we bury, you know, your father or my husband? That conversation is going to be had. So you can have it with them to help them through the grief and save them from it. Or they can be dealing with the grief and that conversation at the same time, overwhelming them. So you, we're not saving anybody from anything. We're the only people we're saving is ourselves because we don't want to face the realities yeah, of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, the way I look at it, if you want to try to deal with all, I mean, it can be very morose and depressing to think about this whole sort of end of days thing and whatever. Here's how I do it. I am never going to die, ever. <laughs> never going to die. And also I'll be wrong. <laughs> but I don't want to think about being wrong. But however, if I am wrong, here's what you need to do. But I'm not going to be wrong, so don't worry about it. It's not important. But in case I am, this is what you need to do. Okay, and that's it. And then I revert back to statement number one, I'm never going to die and move on with my life. You know, and guys, here's an attitude that we need to get out of our head. Somebody in my family, uh, in my parents' generation, so he, he knew that he was going to outlast his wife. So therefore, he did no financial planning, nothing for her because he knew I'm going to live longer than she is. And so, you know, I was the sole breadwinner. I had the pension. I didn't do the option, you know, in a lot of pensions aren't a big deal anymore. But if you have one, you can take less so that your spouse can get a survivor's benefit. He didn't do any of that. He did. The, but then he died and she ended up outliving him by 20 years and she had nothing. Because there there was no life insurance on him because he was going to live longer. There was no money coming in because, you know, he kept, he got the bigger pension by keep, by not doing the survival. So it, she ended up having to sell the house they had so that she could live somewhere else. And I don't remember if it was with family or an apartment or a smaller house somewhere. But, you know, he thought he was saving her by not having her deal with that. But because he died early and she ended up living, you know, another decade or two, she had nothing because there's this mindset. I'm the breadwinner. I'm going to take care of whatever, you know, you're in a relationship with somebody who has 
thoughts and feelings and needs, maybe you will live longer, but maybe you won't. So if you're the main breadwinner, what are you doing to prepare for the eventuality that you go before whoever the non-main breadwinner is? Yeah, I hate bread. Yeah. That's me, um, you know. It's not so bad when you win it, though. No, that's true. <laughs> I'm the bacon bringer, not the There you go, the bacon bringer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to, you know, we, all of our conversations end up uh, 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 revolving around a central point that we can't let go. And I sense that we're heading in that direction right now. Uh, this was not at all the direction I thought this would go, but that's what I like working with really smart people is they take me down different directions. So thanks guys for that. Um, and thanks, now, thanks, you know, guys. <laughs> uh, Seth has one thing he wants to say. Okay. If you're somebody who encrypts your smartphone and, you know, and, you, and you're good about all of that, taking cop pictures of whether it be a, a document or, you know, bank account, you maybe not bank account numbers, but whatever you consider valuable, if you have a picture of it on your phone, and again, if you don't do it and then leave your phone encrypted. And this is up to you to determine whether you think it's worth it or not. But your phone or an encrypted thumb drive with rubber baby buggy bouncers has the password with copies of all of your stuff that, you know, everybody in the family knows what the password is and knows that that thing is there. So originals are good, but sometimes copies can get you through till the originals can be found. So don't just because we're talking about sometimes digital won't be there doesn't mean that digital copies copies aren't an effective piece of any disaster planning and and so here's a plan for paranoid people um encrypt it with a nice long password give cut the password in half give half of it to two different people who like you but hate each other (laughs) but then you would want to give you would because what happens if one of them dies you want to give two people one half and two people the other half you know so it would take you know Anyway. You just want to make sure that they're never going to collude because they can't even right. stand to talk to each other. Right. All right. Now, Seth, what happened this week in history? Okay. Back this week in history, Mark, on May the 2nd, 1983, Microsoft introduces the two-button mouse. Microsoft Corporation announced the two-button Microsoft mouse, which it introduced to go along with its new Microsoft Word processor. Microsoft built approximately 100,000 of these fairly primitive units for use with IBM and IBM-compatible personal computers. However, they only sold about 5,000 before finding success in a 1985 version that featured, among other improvements, near-silent operation on all services the two-button mouse was announced this week in history back to you mark click click that right click became a thing in 1983 who knew that's and cool one of these days apple will admit it exists yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, if i remember when they had that didn't it come with like a you had to get an isa card or whatever the cards were back in yeah serial card yeah yeah you had to have a card for the computer to run the mouse wow because the the built-in bus port on most computers at that time wasn't fast enough to handle that much input. So right. you had to buy a serial card that could handle it. Nice. Yeah. Well done, Bill. Memories. 
Uh, okay. Uh, and now this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. Um, have we said some things that were just absolutely ridiculous and you can't believe we said it and you want to excoriate us uh, personally? Uh, you can do that over at LMNOPE.com. And did we leave something super critical out um, and you want to make sure that our listeners hear it? You can do that over at LMNOPE.com. Do you just want to say, boy? You can do that over at Patreon.com. Uh, and so these are the ways that you can tell us what you think. Elementopi.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, uh, uh, fill out the world's hardest captcha, uh, and then uh, fill out the form there. And that gives, uh, uh, send a message that gets priority in my end basket. Or you can dial 559-IMOP like the anonymous uh, tipster uh, tonight did. Uh, do state your name and maybe where you're from. Um, first names only is fine. Or, you know, if you're Lord Gigabyte, that's fine. Uh, any name will do. Um, uh, because we like to know who we're talking to. Um, 559 IMOP, leave a message there and we'll play it on the show. Uh, and if you want to give us some love, uh, elementopi.com slash Amazon. Um, hit the, or go to our page and click the Amazon link, whatever you want to do. Uh, do your regular Amazon shopping. It doesn't cost you a thing. makes a little money for us. But if you want to stand up and be counted in a real tangible way, uh, Patreon is a great way to do that. Patreon, uh, elementopi.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N is a great way to give us some money. Or there's always a tip jar. Uh, we had somebody just recently do a regular... Um, uh, recurring thing on uh, on PayPal through the tip jar uh, because you know they didn't want Patreon to get their four uh, percent. I I get that. I appreciate that. You're saving me money and you money. Uh, but uh, you know you don't you don't. Uh, I, I don't. I'm fine with Patreon. It's a great way to do it. Uh, uh, but anyway, if you want to give us money, I will take it. That's all I have to say about that. Now, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity, thus making you look look like a better hiring option? All right, well, we're playing with fire because it's almost 8 o'clock, but um, <laughs> just in case it works, 99bottlesofbeer.net. So this is how you can use over 1,500 different programming languages and their variations to get um, the song 99 Bottles of Beer to play. You can, grow, you can uh, go there and you can click on Browse a Language. Do you want to know how to do it in active Fox pages? Do you want to try some version of assembler or let's see something that starts with T. How about that? Did you know there's Tandy color basic you can use or tango, whatever that is, but you can just click on one of these. Like I'm going to look at trigger. I have no idea what trigger is, but holy crap, here's the way to do it. So anyway, if you want to know how to program 99 bottles of beer, uh, in over 1,500 different variations. This is your website on how to do it. Awesome. And he just uh, began to break up uh, at, at the end of that. Uh, uh, I'm looking at the Visual Basic now because it's one of the languages I uh, speak. And, uh, yeah, it's good, solid, clean code. Um, feel free to paste that directly into your uh, command line. No, don't ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome stuff uh guys this was a great discussion as always i appreciate you being here listener uh, you are literally the reason we're here so i appreciate that and uh we'll see you next week uh because that's it for this episode of the geek rant